what I was gonna do it this time. Quiet. Starting the show. And welcome to. This is way too long. When's it gonna start singing? Okay, welcome to yeah. another exciting episode of Movie Victory. Alright, I guess that's fine. Is that don't really get the, you don't really get the whole point of the song. My turn. Uh, I don't. Alright, go ahead. Movie Victory! Starring David Victory! And Huey Joe JPEG. JPEG. <laughs> and a. Good time together! No, 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 no. Oh, wait. In an episode that nobody wanted, we're talking about The Shining. No, 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 no. Fade out. And just like the family in The Shining, we're going to have a real good time together today. They didn't. I don't think they had a good time together. Okay. Well, I don't know. Open interpretation. I don't know, I don't know if we're going to have a disagreement immediately, but yeah, I, th I don't. <laughs> I don't. I don't think there was a good time together. No, um, no, 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 I no, mean, no. they. There was a lot of screaming. So. Um, yeah, that's they, that's traumatic. Yeah, probably the most traumatic thing that happens in this movie: all the yelling. All the yelling. Yeah. Good not point. Fun. It's, it's it's not the murders. Um, but yeah, well, we're, talking about, one, we're talking about. We're talking about. Stanley Kubrick's 19... I mean, yeah, but we see depictions of others. Stanley Kubrick's 1980 yeah. um, The Shining um, today on Movie Victory in a uh, season that I'm calling Movies That I've Recently Bought on 4K. And so that, that no, I think is... No, this is, is still really season seven. This is Couples Arguing. This is... This is a Couples Arguing film. David Victory's recent purchases on, on okay. 4K. Um... Yeah, so it's difficult to buy stuff that you know that you like that's restored, and I'm not a huge Shining fan, it's but really it, it, not. it's it's visually one of my favorite Kubrick films, and um, mm. so yeah, when the 4K wasn't that expensive, I was like, you know what, I'm gonna buy it, because um, mm -hmm. it is almost like a, what other Kubrick? I mean, I got 2001. Um, yeah, I'm like, I don't know if I'm that excited to rewatch Barry Lyndon if they if they have nope. that in 4K. Uh, Boring. But, <laughs> <laughs> and you lo and I guess I've, I'm, I do want to rewatch uh, what's the Full Metal Jacket sometime, but I don't know if I really oh, care to own, care God. to own that one. Um, so anyway, so that's my history for why I bought this. I haven't seen this movie in forever. Uh, the copy, yeah, the, it looked it looked great. It looked amazing. Mm -hmm. um, all I thought about, uh, well, during the opening was just like, is Christopher Nolan just this is his. <laughs> Is one move. I, I, just, I just thought about that. I was just like, oh, this oh, is the aerial no. shot? Well, the movement. Like, throughout this movie, we're just moving all the time. The camera's moving, mm -hmm. like, constantly to, like, add momentum. And then the music is, like, swelling. Like, in scenes that shouldn't seem suspenseful. Like, I kept on thinking about that. Like, in a scene where we're, like, we just see the girls. And they're like, hello, or something. And it cutaways. Right. And then the music. And you're like, nothing really scary happened. You know? Or, right. like, the scary... It's just... Well, I think... Uh, a lot I of the I scary... See, I see your point. Yeah. Okay, but I will. We should get started with the. I well, guess I was the just plot, say, I plot think any, first. Pick yeah, a filmmaker. So. Sorry, uh, I was just going to say in response to the Nolan thing. Pick any big budget filmmaker, or somebody and, who deals with large scale. Oh, and they're going to be a they've Kubrick. They've probably yeah. been influenced by Kubrick. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. Like but inevitable. like. But the camera movements, and I feel like Kubrick is different in all of his films. So I'm like, I don't know if I would say any of his other films had this this type of. 
just continual movement of the camera like mm-hmm. this one has. Um, yeah. Although one so, of my favorite shots, no movement. The one where, no he's, mo- where he's locked in the in the, the food closet and it's from below. Okay. That's that one of my favorite shots. Very strange. Very unsettling shot. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to um, picture that one. Uh, but if you haven't seen the film, um, then you've probably been avoiding it because it's yeah, it's it's a it's a classic, I guess, of horror films, and it's probably Stanley Kubrick's most accessible films. Um, I don't know if it's the one that made the most money, but it was a success when it came out, um, and it tells Stanley Kubrick's version of Stephen King's The Shining, which has been you know Stephen King is criticized because it's not really the same story, and I think Kubrick no. is well aware of that and kind of tried to make. A very different film. Um, yeah. than There's King even was. jokes about that in the film. That are yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I mean, I know that apparently, uh, like, yeah, he just he he read a bunch of horror books. I guess he was had his mind he's going to do a horror movie, and this was the only one he he actually finished because the other <laughs> the ones he didn't like as much. Um, mm-hmm. So anyway, so he's I, I guess he's kind of a a horror snob. Um, Stanley Kubrick uh, doesn't have a lot. <laughs> But who, ca- who cares? It's funny because it's not uh, really a horror film until about the last half hour. Well, that's because one of the changes is the lack of, like, Kubrick doesn't believe in the supernatural, which I don't know how much that matters. But the, the our world gives us an explanation for things not being supernatural, which is not in the Stephen King version, where it's, like, supernatural from the beginning. There is no mm-hmm. alternative, oh, it's cabin fever, like that explanation that we get, like, early mm-hmm. on in the film. Um, but I digress. If you haven't seen the film, it's about a character who has a wife and a small son. They live in a, a hotel um, for an extended period of time by themselves as the caretakers. It's their job to just take care of the hotel. Um, but instead, um, we get a story of a character who starts going crazy and then wants to kill his family and then ultimately doesn't succeed and dies at the hotel. And Don't give his, the ending away. Well, I'm doing a plot summary. His wife and daughter get away. All right, I'm just I'm just trying to do a quick plot summary. Okay, so, so that's also, the film. Also, fun fact, uh, I would love to talk about how many things are different from the Stephen King. For instance, there's no maze in the yes. Stephen King book. Yeah, I, I actually did look at a list before this, and I was just like, okay, these are some interesting. I looked at, like, a top ten, so I wasn't sure, like, how many we were going to talk about or what comes Can up. I tell you something? Oh, yeah, go ahead. Can I, can I do a big reveal right off the bat here? Sure. I did not watch The Shining in preparation for this What? <laughs> I have seen it so many fucking times. And I as recently as I watched it, I think twice, I watched this and Doctor Sleep twice during quarantine. Okay. Uh, once, was, once was one day after the other, the other one was back to back. I've seen The Shining more than 20 times in my life, easily. I've even, I think I told the story on on the podcast before about how I once ruined a date with The Shining. Uh, oh, yeah, and they didn't like yeah, it or something. Yeah, yeah. Well, we went and saw a movie that she really, really liked, and then when we left, we were in such a good mood, and then I was like, oh, it was almost midnight. Oh, she hadn't like, oh, seen God. The Shining Yeah, yet. I was like, yeah. oh, my God, they're playing The Shining at midnight, and then we snuck in, which was also, like, a fun date thing to do, and then she was just mortified by The Shining, and I completely ruined the date. Anyway, um, I've seen this movie enough times to be able to talk about it at any time, so instead... Since I really wasn't in the mood last night to endure it, because I was kind of tired already, I instead watched the documentary Room 237 to be a little more well-versed in a lot of the 
the background and sort of uh, some of the some of the interesting things that Kubrick did, uh, little clues that he planted and hid in the background, and sort of very like meta commentary. And just to get it out of the way, Room Two Three Seven is it's a little less than half like conspiracy theories about the movie, and then a little more than half are just actually very observant people who have probably watched it obsessively too many times and have actually uncovered a very interesting, you know, background clue or um I don't I don't know of what people who have discovered like a very interesting people say easter eggs a lot of the times I don't know, sure, whatever, whatever, sure. whatever you want to say um, um but there's lots of things where, and they in the documentary it's good cuz they'll actually have like and then if you look on on set, you know, this isn't just me being paranoid and thinking this, there's actually set footage of Kubrick very carefully placing this background item, which I am pointing out has great importance to the scene and this sort of thing. Um, so yeah, Room 237, if you're a fan of The Shining, would recommend take it with a grain of salt, but I'd say more than half of the interviewees are actually onto something, and then slightly less than half, you're like, nah, I don't buy it. But I think that's part of the way, reason the documentary is so fun is because it's like, look at how this film causes people to just either completely go off the rails with their interpretation or get really hyper-specific and OCD about it and actually uncover something interesting. Uh, so that's where I'm at. How are you? Well, I, I mean, I'm, I'm fine. I mean, I You're yeah. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about some of those examples from that documentary. If you, sure, you, I think you, as they come up, yeah, I might, I might try to reference up. a couple. Because I feel like we're not really going to go, definitely not going to go scene by scene through this film. No. Um, I thought we could talk about some general kind of express, um, impressions and uh, kind of mm-hmm. our takes and what we get from it. and um, Maybe like our history with the film like we like to do. Yeah, sure. When, when's the first time? Do you remember the first time you saw it? No, no. Me I remember. Wa- I remember watching it though. I know I was a kid. With, I, I remember. I, I, I used my eyeballs for sure, and um, mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember not realizing um, on this rewatch. I was just like, I don't remember realizing like what a huge jerk um, Nicholson is from the beginning. You know. <laughs> what? I was just. He's the villain. He's the bad guy. I I know, but I was just like, I was just like, I was just like, all right, he's a little gruff, a little little unreasonable. He's having a tough day. I I I mean, just some of the things he says is just kind of like, you know, and then. uh, I mean, it's a great example of a movie where the main character is the villain. Yes, and uh, it's interesting that the Stephen King version, this is one of the differences, and you probably know, it's that his character was supposed to be an everyman and then became evil. Like, there was the transformation where... That's true, too. In this version, we don't have that. We have somebody who is already... Well, I mean... I mean, Stephen King's like this is like a comment. This is one of his criticisms for the film. Like, he's a little off at the beginning, um, already, already, and uh, so we're really just kind of—it's more of a ticking time bomb for when he's going to kind of yeah, snap, as opposed to here's a just a regular nice guy who is transformed by the hotel. And um, right, let's yeah. also not forget the meta, the analogy of alcoholism, negative oh, yeah. families. Right, that's very Al- on the surface. 
alcoholism is my big take on this. I see it through that lens, and that is very much the book. Um, the book yeah. is about alcoholism, Stephen King's own battles with alcoholism. Um, the movie definitely has more broad interpretations as far as like what the metaphor is for. We have, um, yep. you probably heard some of them. That's the there's the the one about. It's Native symbolizing, Americans. yeah, Native Americans and like the white nationalism, which I I th I think there is a lot here to suggest that this is this is there. Um, oh yeah, there's it, pictures yeah. of Na there's photographs of Native Americans and Native American flags all over right. the hotel in most of the scenes. Right, and then we have have the time of the of the picture, which is July fourth, and it's like mm -hmm. nineteen. It's like the independent yeah. it's like a symbol of like nationalism. There's also a lot of um, right. There's also a lot of German iconography uh, as well. Like his typewriter is German. Oh yeah, and I've heard yeah, that this sort of thing. And there's uh, so one of the one of the more if you t in room two three seven if you take all of their takes collectively because some people say oh it's about the Holocaust some people say oh it's about the genocide of American Indians oh it's about this particular place in Colorado that that the Overlook Hotel is modeled after in the film and how that's actually buried on, or, <clears throat> excuse me, on Indian burial grounds and this sort of thing. Like, the Colorado flag is in the film a bunch of times, too. And, uh, but if you take them all collectively, what he's really doing is he's pointing out the horrors of man as a whole. So he's like, I'm just going to make all these very subtle hidden references to the Holocaust and to American genocide and to X, Y, and Z in history and the atrocities of man throughout the film without ever saying them. I'm going to dapple them throughout on the, the decorations in the hotel and this sort of thing, uh, all the objects they use. And so, yeah, it's, it's subconsciously suggesting all, at all times the horrors of man. So it's a very meta horror film in that sense. Um, that's my personal interpretation from watching Room 237. It's like it's... It's it's about all of these things. It just depends on which particular. This is like eyes wide shut. Depends on which particular detail you want to focus on, and then you can extrapolate from that. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Your turn. All right. No, it's fine. Um, now, it. I. I mean, I think you're you're ultimately right, and and I think other. I think writers I know will say this kind of like. I think James Joyce is famously. Um, said that, oh, I'm going to make my stories complicated so people have to talk about them for a long time, you know? And so, and they are very much like, I'm going to give it a lot of meaning, a lot of references so that, you know, people are never quite sure and there's always something to kind of unpack. And I think Kubrick right. does that in his films where, like, he's just going to always put things that are there very deliberate. There's so many deliberate choices. Now, I don't know if he's sitting there and being like, oh, I want this to mean this. I mean, to th and like, I guess we have some of his um, commentary of what he said about how to interpret some of the things of the film. Um, and then we also know about the real life way that he shot the film, which apparently it was very meta where he became kind of the Jack Nicholson was a real jerk to mm -hmm. everybody on set and screaming and yelling and um, and yeah you don't know really kind of how to take take that too so there is this uh, I, I, I listened to a podcast and this, and this guy was like yeah it's just like you know it's just everybody's kind of like they're 
they see themselves as the character. And I was like, in a lot of ways, Stanley Kubrick sees himself as the Jack. And so that's kind of mm -hmm. the world of the movie. And Stephen King oh. sees himself as that character. So that's why he's mm -hmm. very invested in who that person is. Right. Now, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think that's... Uh, and to your thing earlier about the differences between Stephen King, if you might be interested, something they talk about in Room 237 is Kubrick dapples like visual jokes throughout the film essentially to mock Stephen King and make him go crazy while watching it because of course Stephen King hated it and so every time Kubrick makes a change even a slight one like for instance in the film or excuse me in the in the book The Shining uh, Jack Torrance's car is a red VW bug in the film Kubrick makes a seemingly insignificant change and makes it a yellow VW bug and the amusing thing they point out in the documentary is, and they point out several things that Kubrick changes, and then how he sort of rubs it in Stephen King's face and says, this isn't your book, this is my movie, essentially. I'm, I'm at the wheel. And one of the most, I don't want to say funny, but one of the most troubling things that he does is when, when there's the snowstorm and the, the caretaker is, remind me his name? The only person that dies? I don't know. Dick Holleran. Dick Holleran, okay. Okay. So when Dick Holleran is trying to get back to the Overlook and he's driving through the snow, mm -hmm. one of the things that blocks yeah. him is a giant semi-truck is tipped over. Right. And as we know, Kubrick is very meticulous. Everything's purposeful. The car that is crushed by the semi-truck is a red VW bug. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So he's literally, in that moment, he's literally subconsciously saying to Stephen King, I like your book, but this is my movie, and, you know, fuck you for getting upset that I'm changing it. So he's, he's essentially trolling Stephen King in several different uh, visual puns, almost. Which is just such a dick move, but also really, really funny. Yeah, I don't know if how much Stephen King cares about those kind of things. I'm sure, like, from what I've read, he cares, like, oh, you've changed the characters. Um, and even I, I, even the characters were changed from the screenplay, which was interesting. So the right. his wife is one of the other characters that changed along, you know, Shelley Duvall's char um, character, where she apparently was not only supposed to be blonde, but like a a popular, like just a charismatic, kind of a would-be celebrity, as, as she's well, described it. Instead, he went with olive oil. Yeah, instead he just went the complete opposite direction. Um, Which right. is what he does with most of the... This is why it's such an interesting adaptation, is he... Anytime there's, like, a particular thing in the book, like I said, the, the red VW, and mm. seemingly insignificantly changing it to yellow, and then later in the film crushing a red VW, um, it's like Kubrick knows how difficult it is to he's making a commentary on how difficult it is to adapt something also and so every change that he makes to the script from the book he then visually adds another layer while filming it to sort of make fun of the fact that he's changing it uh, which is just such a you know 3D chess thing to do to, to it makes me feel like he's bored and he's just like well I guess I could add another layer like, I don't know if he cares if Stephen King is picking this up. I think he knows that he's going to bother Stephen King with all these changes. And he's going, well, i got to make my movie the way I make it. You know, this is how I think. And so, I don't want to guess Kubrick's intent, but I, 
we can definitely observe that he's commenting on the fact that he's changing so much throughout the film. Yeah, and I, I would say there's a lot of uh, screenplay directors that have been a lot less less respectful of somebody's work. In, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, a, lo- a lot of it's the same, but it is... He keeps the basic story, you could say. The, uh, right. This, this setup. And then, but then in changing the characters, even the setup changes a lot. And so mm-hmm. um, it, is, it is very much... Um, here, I'm going to take some of the basic elements of your story and just kind of that's it and come up with my own thing which I'm okay with I'm okay with authors that do that I mean with anybody that does that yeah we've talked about some of the best adaptations are not literal direct adaptations some of the best ones are not even inspired by but they they do something in the spirit of Right. The book, it's more it's right? more of like their done. version. Yeah. And and yeah. I like I like that where it's like, you know, actors are like, I gotta find, you know, my version of this character. Mm-hmm. It's not gonna be everybody else's right. version. Because if and I try I, to be very like this is one of the reasons I, I take mimic, issue, like, Yeah. No, you can finish. No, I'm just saying like if you try to mimic what somebody else is, does, it's just not the same, you know. Instead of right. trying to be like, okay, what is my take on this material or this story, which I think is definitely what right. Kubrick does in all of his work. Like you know, like he doesn't seem to even want to pick stuff that is like like it just seems to be about the money. I feel like this in Clockwork mm-hmm. Orange, he picked these books because they were popular. That was all. You know, it's popular and it's a good Oh, draft, I don't know about that. I think he draft, genuinely I think. likes I think he Clockwork genuinely Orange. likes Clockwork Orange. Yeah. Everything I've read about it, it's not very well received critically that it was just kind of the a The book pop, or the movie? The book that it was just kind I think of you're a talking popular. about Kubrick. I think Kubrick very much enjoys the book. Oh, okay. Okay, the book, he, mi- he might. I just, I know that book is not well respected from what I've read about it. Really? Um, it's difficult yeah. to read. I, kn- I could never finish it. I mean, from what I've read, it's just kind of propaganda. Like, it's it's really, a, it's really yeah, kind well, of a... Let's not talk about Clockwork Orange. Yeah, we don't have to Honestly. get into it. But, it, like, it was, a, it was about a real scare, and it was, like, highlighting this thing that wasn't really true hmm. to... And so... Well, that's anyway. another one that's also a lot of layers. I mean, obviously, the, the language in that book is bonkers. But, but the so. movie wasn't about that at all. So that's the whole thing. It's just, like, the book was about very specific messaging. Um, yeah. and but, I kind of uh, don't want to talk about Clockwork Orange. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Oh, so um, sensitive. He's <laughs> just know. like can't well, have after anything watching The Shining. Out. You know, you get a little on edge. You're on edge now. Is that is that how, are you edge. dealing with your own shining right now? You got a ghost trying to tempt you to drink booze. Oh, the house I live in is definitely haunted. Okay, so no doubt about that. And you, do you but feel I, like I've made you peace can with that you so can shine ago. with people? I mean, we often you know. Oh yeah. Communicate through shining. Mm-hmm. And that's fine. <laughs> Yeah, I do like the term "The Shining." I don't know. I don't. This mm-hmm. is something that's stupid, but like that scene where he explains what The Shining is, which which I heard that they shot that 140 times apparently. Um, uh, what? And then you just take 37. Who who knows? <laughs> but there is, but there is this. The characters have gone through like something with, and so the characters all seem. No, I shouldn't say all. I was really thinking about this as watching it this time. I was like. Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, um, Danny, they all seem very tired and like mm-hmm. just, you know, like they've been through something, they're going through something still from the beginning of the movie, you know, on. Like there's mm-hmm. there's a sense of just 
exhaustion. Yes, in that, you know, trauma. And then we get the story of him hurting Danny. And it's kind of like, how are we supposed to take that? Is that is that literally what happened or did something else happen? And then one of the other theories is about, you know, about molestation, that he's like molesting his son and that that's what this story is really about. Right, which, actually which, one of the one ahead. of the funny details uh, that they point out in the doc is when they come to when he goes to the hotel for the first time and they come to meet him and talk to him before they interview him, he's sitting there and he's reading a Playgirl magazine. Yes, I knew and, this. Yeah, and so that's one of the supposed suggestions that there's some latent homosexuality in Jack Torrance. Because Playgirl Magazine, by the way, does not have naked women. It has naked men. Oh, really? Uh, Su- surprise. Yeah, so that's fact. why it's called uh, Playgirl. That's right, as opposed to, it's the it's the yin-yang to Playboy. Okay, but women, what about homosexual men, men like, like Jack Nicholson, maybe? What do you mean, what about it? That's what I'm saying. Uh, no, no, I'm just kidding. Because it's just, it. it's just, it's just called Playgirl. So I'm just saying he's a man, so he's not invited. Um, anyway, mm-hmm. and then apparently on the cover there's like a article. Can you play about, the? Can you play the crickets or the crows? Yeah, for yourself? There's, there's, a, there's an article about incest apparently too on the cover. Um, there is definitely Yikes. a lack of sexual chemistry throughout the film between him mm-hmm. and and Shelley Duvall, which is palpable. The disgust you know, they I have think, for each yeah, other. Yeah, yeah. There is, there is, or a, he has there is a repulsion. Yeah. There is the what's that thing that magnets do, where the, you you try to put magnets together and they push each other apart. Not that's, repulsion. That's not what that's called. I think it's called repulsion. Then why did you ask? All right. It's rhetorical. <laughs> okay. Okay. So there is repulsion. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Continue on. Uh, yeah, attraction, repulsion, and clearly. Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson have that thing where to even get near each other is to push each other away uh, in so many ways. And, I mean, this is why I really think you would... Even if you just see the movie as a whatever regular pop movie, I think you would enjoy Doctor Sleep as a story. Because, for me, the reason I like Doctor Sleep and will defend it is because... I think The Shining is a better film, because Kubrick's a better filmmaker than whoever directed Dr. Sleep, I don't even know, no offense. But I still enjoy myself when I watch it, and I think it's because I enjoy the story so much. To me, uh, The Shining is just a chamber piece, essentially, about a man goes crazy, tries to kill his family, fails. And there's some supernatural stuff. Pretty simple, straightforward story, honestly. Dr. Sleep relative to how simple that plot outline is, is one family, one man goes crazy, fails at murder. The thing I like about Dr. Sleep is it takes that and blows the whole world open. Where it's, what you have in Dr. Sleep is Danny Torrance has grown up and has become an alcoholic, has, is dealing with that, and then furthermore has to deal with his shining and also the shining of in meeting people who also have it and sort of he gets to play the role that Scatman Crothers plays for him for someone else and so it's a really good sequel it's a, I'm giving credit to Stephen King for Doctor Sleep because I think Doctor Sleep is actually a great story even if it's not as good of a film that's what I'm trying to say did he write Doctor Sleep was mm-hmm. it based on yeah yeah he wrote the sequel many years many years later and then it wasn't adapted until much much you know 
2000s. Oh, interesting. Um, I started yeah, yeah, it. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in it. It is. Um, oh yeah, I think it's yeah, good. I, like I think it really part. holds up. I yeah yeah. Um, I'm a supporter of it. Like I said, not as good of a movie. It's very the director. It's very color by the numbers. It's very drawn the lines. Don't experiment. But I mean, even then, there's still some really interesting stuff that he does. Just because the content he's dealing with demands, like, well, how the fuck do I show that? Yeah. Um. Hmm. So yeah, like it has a really good scene that shows like astral projection, and I was hmm. like, wow, I've never quite seen that in a movie before. Um, so it's still doing interesting things, even if the director's kind of like <laughs> not Kubrick level, which you can say about most people. Uh, but yeah, shout out to Doctor Sleep. I would recommend if anyone likes The Shining, worth a watch. So. Yeah, so so that's the takeaway. Don't watch The Shining. Watch Dark. Well, obviously, you should no, watch, watch, watch both. Watch both. Um, um, if you want to, I, I, I went on a sorry. I went on a rant for a couple minutes. I'm gonna go pee. If you want to go on your rant now, okay. Well, now it's not I gonna seem you. it's not gonna seem forced at all. Um, <laughs> no, I'm just gonna say that for me, the film visually is the uh, is mostly appealing. Like watching it, uh, the the shots of the hotel, um, especially when it gets snowy. Those shots are just just amazing to look at. Um, you can really feel the presence of the place that you're in when you were inside the hotel and so many of the different vibrant colors like uh, the the toilet. When there's the scene when the guy spills something, which is which is crazy when all of a sudden Jack Nicholson is in the ball and there's all these ghosts there. Well, they don't look like they ghosts. They just look like regular people. It looks like they're in the 1920s, confirmed in the picture later, and somebody spills something on him, and then they go to the bathroom and he cleans it up. And then that guy then goes on to tell him that he's always been there, and then also tells him... Creepy um, thing to say. Yeah, and he tells him that he, you know he needs to correct the children. After he also says drops the n-word which i did not remember i was really? just like I don't I was just, that. yeah yeah um huh. yeah there there was t there was the n-word in this that i was just like what <laughs> that's in this he was because yeah i'm sure it's edited out in some versions i don't know what version i had but i, re I looked at the different times and i have the longest version whatever that means the uh two hours and 46 minutes I think or no two hours and 26 minutes is, is what it is uh, anyway so that guy says the n-word in that scene he's like there's a n-word on his way to come up here do you know about oh, this I do remember that. yeah yeah and then um, well, I think that's another like one of the things of Kubrick dealing with like the horrors of man I mean I don't actually think this was mentioned in room 237 but if he is raking allusions to the Holocaust and also the genocide of the American Indian, excuse me, the Native Americans, um, it only makes sense, whether it's in Stephen King's novel or not, that he would make reference at some point to American right. racism. American against, racism. Against the black and, and oh, the yeah, genocide sure. of, and slavery and this sort of thing. Oh, it's um, yeah, it's just nasty to hear. Because he's showing, like, yeah. he's always trying to show you how hor how... The horror is man's innate nature to hate other people for whatever reason, you know, and kill them systematically, which is yikes. Um, I don't know. What do you think? By the way, I really hope that when you said bathroom, I flushed the toilet. 
and I really mm. hope that the audio caught it because that's funny. Um, what do you think about the fact that the maze isn't in the book? Because it's such a central part of the film. I mean, there's even that shot where he's like standing over the maze, looking over it, and he looks enormous. And then we see an early of the maze, and his daughter, his uh, son and wife are tiny in it and they cut back to him and he's like enormous looking over it uh that to me is a very like chilling shot of like he's already lost his mind but it's also like he thinks that he's so in control or has so much power despite the fact that he's completely lost control because he lost his mind and just that that shot of like him looking over the maze from the inside the miniature of the maze and then the shot of his wife and kid going through the maze is like so deeply unsettling to me um and also i didn't even know that it wasn't in the book until i watched the documentary i didn't know i i never read the book and so i had no idea that the maze wasn't in the book i was assumed it was a central element of the plot but it's that's crazy to me that that that's completely kubrick but it's I, i guess i remember the sequence like this so we see the maze first he's like approaching it then he's looking at it and then as it then the the changes to the real thing and then we see the characters and then we go closer and then we go there so i mean i saw that as a transition not that i was supposed to believe that jack nicholson was like imagining that he could see um his wife oh no i'm not suggesting he was imagining that he could see i'm saying kubrick is playing with the visual metaphor. Oh, okay. I, I don't, okay. No, no, I don't think Jack Nicholson okay. is actually some sort <laughs> of right. god. Okay. No, okay. I'm saying it's a deeply unsettling yeah. shot because we're seeing him, him from below looking over it, and they cut to an aerial of them as if he mm. were he were looking. a giant looking right. over it, okay. as if he were in control. But the the visual metaphor I think is that he's not in control; he's losing his mind. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. And to me, the Rewatching that in particular and also like I said the shot from again from directly below him when he's trapped in the uh, when he's trapped in the storage closet right and they shoot him from direct, directly below and he keeps like trying to hit the handle to get in he's like yelling to get out uh, it's a really weird subversion of that kind of shot because normally when you shoot somebody from below it means this person has some sort of power like it it represents the visual metaphor is this person is in control or has power in some way but the times that Kubrick uses it are when Jack Torrance is completely powerless one he's trapped in the storage closet and we see him from below as if he's powerful he believes he is but he's not and then the other time is when he's looking over the maze and he's absolutely losing his fucking mind, so he's not powerful at all, because he's not in control. So I think that's a really interesting thing that he did. He's like, he's constantly subverting your expectations of what this certain shot or angle is supposed to mean in, like, film grammar. Oh, okay. Which I think sure. is a really strange... That's what I'm That's what I'm getting, That's what I wanted to say. Yeah. Ten years he's, later. Yeah, he's subverting film grammar, is what I'm saying. Yeah, you know what? 
he is kind of, you know, he's just like the James Joyce of filmmakers. He's just like, I know the rules, yet I'm going to break them a little bit. Just a little mm -hmm. bit, just so that you can see I'm showing off, you know. Watch right, me I'm going to bend them, and then you might yeah. be able to figure it out, or yeah. not. I don't or care. Not. Yeah. yeah. You're right. It's, it's, it's I, don't right even, I don't even care, because I'm just obsessed words, and driven, you know. Yeah, he's a total megalomaniac. Right, yeah. yeah I mean, he medium. Yeah. I mean, this is his apocalypse now, I think, in a lot of ways, where he was just kind of crazy during the making yeah. of this I, I think he yeah. is Jack Torrance. Yeah. I think Kubrick know, and I think he's self-aware enough to know, I am this character. I mean, there's even some suggestions of, you know, the whole thing with the Apollo moon landing, mm. and like how da Danny yeah. Torrance is wearing a shirt that says Apollo 11. Right. Did you also know that in the book, uh, the, the haunted room number is 217? And he changes it to two three seven. Mm. Yeah, uh, I know. And so the whole moon that the moon is whatever it is two hundred thirty seven whatever. But it's not. Miles but away. it's not actually. Look it up. It's well, two hundred thirty eight. No, it wasn't. This is the seventies. No, that's just a lie. Look it up. I it's did. I did. I did, okay. I did look that up because I was just like, that's BS. <laughs> I was just like, I was just like, you really tried to force it, but it's not actually too true. It's two hundred thirty eight thousand. Um, so even if you rounded it up, no, the science of the time was the same thing. That's just a BS story. Um, uh, it but doesn't mean that Kubrick didn't have false information. I mean, even if they knew in the 70s, it doesn't mean he didn't have a book from the oh, 50s okay. that had... It, it's literally one, 238 and 237, it's one off. On. Yeah, it's one number off, but you're like, if you're going to be oh, no. exact, I'm just like, that's just a silly thing. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. We didn't have the internet. He, he literally had research teams that he would have go to libraries for months and try to figure this shit out for him. That's why well, they actually sent the place in Colorado. He actually sent a research team of three of his interns to live there for three months and do nothing but find out information about Colorado history and the genocide of American Indians. Okay, and that's interesting. Guy, yeah, this yeah. is a guy who purposely sent people to do research for him, and then he's just dealing with the data they collect. So if they wrote down thirty-seven instead of thirty-eight, that's not his. That's not him being accidentally wrong. That's just the chaos of the universe and somebody got it somebody read the wrong thing i, th I think that's you know? just silly but you know it's, it's, i don't think it's, i think it's i think the your, fact that it's word. one off take your own interpretation makes the whole idea no that's the fact that's that it's what, one off makes it irrelevant that's that's the he whole thing that's the had, way conspiracies fall apart he purposely had a sweater made because if you're going to be exact you'll be exact you won't just be a little off no that's yeah, not yeah, true because yeah. people are that's the is a statistical inevitability that no matter how that the more exact you try to be, you will get something wrong. It is a statistical fact that the more precise you try to be, you're going to get something wrong. I mean, do you think it's a just a chance coincidence that Danny Torrance is wearing the Apollo Eleven sweater that was specifically made for the film? Is that an accident? I don't was know it one what. Off and it should have been I, Apollo Twelve. I don't know what you're saying that that means. I'm saying there is a scene in the film. I know. I'm just. I'm saying, like, Danny what is Torrance, that, what is that, what does that mean? Uh, Danny Torres is wearing the Apollo 11 sweater, which is purposely made for the film, as he's approaching room 237. I'm saying it's entirely possible that Kubrick either one was misinformed because he's dealing with old textbooks in the 1970s when he's gathering research, does not have the internet, does not have updated scientific data. Uh, has a roundabout estimate of how far the moon is, and he's very close. He's only one off. And, uh, well, technically, he's you know whatever a thousand miles off or whatever. A hundred and um, a hundred and eighty thousand. 
no, no. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I googled it. The moon is uh, our current estimate, which, by the way, the universe is expanding, so this estimate's always changing and is always an estimate. Uh, the moon is currently two hundred thirty-eight and two two hundred thirty-eight thousand nine hundred miles. Yeah. Now, in in the documentary, yeah, that's our current estimate. This will change in twenty years, and it will get more accurate as our instruments get more precise. Uh, I don't know no, if that's and this true. Is, yes, it is. Okay, that's like how science the, the, works. it's like the like the size of also the, the, the distance the, of the moon how, changes. And how old the Earth is has not changed. Um, the distance but, of the moon changes during orbit. The universe is expanding. I would encourage anybody listening to do their own research on how the how far the distance of the moon is and how long we've known it and whether or not that's changed over time. Um, well, I can just Google that right now. I don't How long have we known the distance of the moon from the Earth, and has <laughs> oh okay. changed? The moon has been drifting away from Earth for 4.5 billion years. First thing. Ergo, it changes all the time. Seems like a long time. So does it change a lot all the time over 4.5 billion no, years? Like I said, the universe is expanding, so it's always slightly... Of course, the universe like, is expanding. For instance, this article has a slightly less amount than the one I just said. Uh, and that's because it's from this article's from a few years ago. So not only is the thing constantly constantly being updated because our scientific instruments are constantly improving and trying to get a more accurate uh, reading, but it's also constantly changing because it's always moving. It's always in orbit. It's always a slight distance from us depending on what time of year we measure it. So no, I firmly believe that in the 70s, Kubrick's, Kubrick's best estimate was 237. The fact that it changed 40 years later, in 2020, is absolute proof of the fact that he was trying to be accurate. Anyway, this was all brought up because, and I think Kubrick's clever enough to know that even being one number off will cause people to argue about it. I think he's smart enough to know that. The point I was trying to make was, Kubrick has an Apollo 11 shirt, sweater, purposely made for the kid to wear in the film. As he's approaching, room 237, which is not the number in the book. It's 217. He purposely changes it. Uh, now, at the time, with the best scientific data that he had, it was thought in the 70s that the moon was 237,000 miles away. See, that's uh, just not true. Obviously, changed. Obviously, I'm reading, changed. I'm reading well, that's 1950. I'm like reading right now here. In 1950s, the date of the moon, they've used the same measurement. Okay, this is just on Wikipedia. I'm just reading. Units later than the 1950s, all measurement of lunar distance were based on optical angle measurements. Um, 1960s, they experiment radars. So, like, this idea that it's, like, been incredibly... Okay. It's just not true. I'm just... I don't uh, want to okay, make well, a I'm big deal at, about this, but... It's I'm just, looking at uh, the distance from the moon to New York in the 1970s, and it says it's only... 251,000. So again, it's from where you measure it. Where are you And it's the time. Is, I'm, I'll send you the now? link right now. Okay. It's from timeanddate.com. It's a very scientific website. Also, I don't know why we're trusting Wikipedia on anything. Um, no, I mean, I don't... I'm just... I don't... Like, as far as your understanding, I'm mean, like, I'm not hearing any actual science. Um, so I'm sorry. Well, but I don't... Of, I, but I'm not saying... Okay. I don't. I have Hold time on, to bullet, research right, this right points. now. Okay. I'll rehash... 
Um, I was part of, hoping to talk about the movie, but um, I know, if you, and if I, you I want to believe in this keep... lunar uh, conspiracy, no, no, no. this, this is, is not a conspiracy. Okay, let me ask you a question. Which part of saying one, the universe is expanding, two, the distance of the moon changes depending on what time of year you measure it and with what instruments, three, science is constantly updating their information and that changes over time depending on who's measuring it and when and where. Which part of any of those things is not speaking scientifically? I'm not disagreeing with those individual points. It's the conclusion. Those are my make. points. Those, Which okay. conclusion have I made? Because I haven't gotten around to my point yet. Uh, it, okay. Like, <laughs> I, point I, then I have no idea. I have no the idea kid, what your point is then. Yeah, what the is? kid is the... My point is the kid wearing an Apollo 11 sweater, and I've never been able to get to the point because you keep saying I'm not saying scientific data when that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm pointing out repeated scientific data. From timeanddate.com. Okay. Which, actually, I'm looking at timeanddate.com, and, the, and it actually, according to them, the distance has not changed much in the past 20 to 30 years. It's changed very little. You think little. that 250 to 200 and... I'm just I'm just clicking it's next not and, much. and I mean, looking. You're argue, you were arguing no, a I'm, minute ago. I'm going 1, to 2022. See, see, they say they say the same they say the same amount in 2022. That's what I'm telling you. So in 2022, I can send you the link. It also says 251,000. So according okay. to them, their information has not has has not changed that much. Do you see on timeanddate.com? It shows how in 1970, distance from the moon to New York, is in January, 222,000 miles. And then as it continues, by, for instance, uh, so the closest approach is the perigree, the furthest part is the apogee, this is science. It goes throughout the year of 1970 from 222,000 miles away to 250 miles away. Ergo, it what matters is when you are measuring it, at what time of year, and how far it is in orbit, what place of the orbit it is from the Earth. That is how nothing this. I, nothing I've said here is conspiratorial and scientific. I haven't even I, been able I to get around I just think we should drop this because this is not okay. the kind of measurement that I'm even talking about. But I don't. We don't have time to get into this. That's and so I'm like, it's fine. Let's just move on. Time. You could just move on to it because I want to talk about the movie, not this. So if you want to, I know, make, but, and I've never been able to. I, I haven't even so, gotten to get so around make, to the conspiracy. So make so make your point. I'm just like, I'm not stopping you from making your point. I'm disagreeing with what your conclusion is. Okay, what you're I saying about si yet, science. So I'm I'm disagreeing okay. with. Then let's but, be clear. What are you disagreeing with? The idea that the that it has changed our estimates have changed that much over the past 50 years or i guess 40 years i disagree with i don't think that's true okay based on what based on what i've read read about the distance between the earth uh -huh. and the moon and i and have just updated you with much information one of which is depending on what time of year you measure the distance of the earth to the moon it changes a drastic degree we're talking tens of thousands of miles. Okay, and, and I'm just going to respectfully year, say that I don't year. think you understand what you're talking about, but it's not, <laughs> I don't think it's important that we get into it. So you can just make your point and okay. we can move on, okay? Uh, for anyone listening still, feel free to Google how far was the moon from the Earth in and then type in any year you want and it'll take you to timeanddate.com. It'll show you that the those numbers change drastically depending on what time of year you measure it.
That is science. It doesn't matter anymore. Let's just change the subject. <laughs> and he wears an Apollo 11 shirt because uh, the conspiracy, which I never got to get around to, which I did not even say whether I agree with or not, is uh, the classic one that Kubrick helped uh, make a simulacra of the moon landing. Not to say the moon landing didn't happen, but that there are numerous things that show that they used a background set and that Kubrick is essentially alluding to that. There's also the thing of Kubrick repeatedly uh, relating to Jack Torrance and that Jack Torrance is hiding something from his wife and there's numerous allusions to the moon landing in different scenes where Jack Torrance is purposely lying to his wife because apparently Kubrick felt that's what he had to do at the time because this was a government thing. Anyway, that was the point I was trying to get to. I, I just don't understand the contrarianism when I'm literally providing actual science and, and actively Googling it, but that's alright. Well, I feel confident I've made my point clear, so it's. I feel like Me too, yeah. Then, then history, history will tell. Awesome, that sounds awesome. Plenty of other people will do the research for us and, and it'll be just fine. I encourage, I encourage the scrutiny. Um, yeah, I just, I don't buy into that. And you know, I, I'm fully, I'm always open to being wrong, but like that, that whole concept of Kubrick and the moonlighting stuff, I'm just, you know, I'm not, I don't buy into it. You know, I don't know what your take is and on it. Fine. And I um, have, yeah, I have no, I have no comment yeah. on the moonlighting thing. My, my concern was that I didn't understand why just making mm -hmm. scientific statements was then met with, well, that's not science. I really did not understand what was happening. I was literally providing information as it was needed. Um, everything I said about distance of the measurement of the moon constantly changing and constantly being updated is is true. So. Okay. Um, well, this was fun. Yeah. No, um... I guess ultimately, I I feel like the movie's really more about, or at least I guess what I get from it is more of the story of like how alcoholism can kind of destroy somebody, and so oh, yeah. so I kind of like and um, yeah, and you can get into a lot of the other theories for how to interpret the film, but um, for me, it's always more about like he has this addiction inside of him, and that. So that's kind of like what I see at the beginning that it's kind of like brooding in him like even at the beginning and then the story of like him hurting Danny and then how mm -hmm. delicate he's like oh I'd never do that and it's like him trying to keep that version and then Danny mm -hmm. first interacts with the door and that and then after that scene is when he suddenly becomes a little bit less um hinged you know mm -hmm. and and so that's I always why I think you'd really like Dr. Sleep yeah, it, that's it what show, I'm, it does show how Danny is so influenced and traumatized by that, like the sins of the father. The right? sins of the father of and the alcoholism, yeah. Became, like, yeah, like yeah. Danny is in AA, yeah, just like his dad was, and so like there's a scene. Anyway, I, I won't talk about Doctor Sleep too. Yeah, much. no, I, you've sold me. I'm definitely, I'm like already started it. I'm, I'm yeah, it's, it's such been a good, good so far. It's really a smart, yeah. smart sequel. Yeah. So, but then he's ultimately destroyed by the alcoholism and then at the end like my take is that the alcoholism like he's just kind of absorbed by the hotel you know and i know mm -hmm. people have different takes as like the what the picture means and you know the interpretation but like I'm, i've always just kind of been like i guess i'm like he wasn't there before and he's been taken the hotel took mm -hmm. him you know 
Yeah, his ghost I, has been like absorbed and incorporated into the picture. Right. It's like it's a very yeah. Which is not what uh, Stanley you know what Kubrick thinks, but um, I don't. Know. <laughs> it's, it's it, yeah. Go ahead. This is gonna seem like a silly pun because it is, uh, but it's called the Overlook Hotel. Okay. And a few minutes ago, I was just talking about how creepy it was to me when he's overlooking the maze. Mm. Again, oh yeah, you're pun, right. But oh. And so much of the film were overlooking stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, Yeah, and the hotel overlooks everything else. Right. Yeah, Yeah, it seems like a silly pun, but then the more you go into it, you're like, oh, nope, that's a recurring Hmm. theme. Hmm. I wonder if it is the same name in the book now. I guess it doesn't matter. Um, I think they hmm? said that in... I think it's not. Let me double check. Uh, The, The reason... The reason they had to change the name or the room number does make sense, I guess, as far as, like, that it's a real number. The number that Stephen King has was a real number in the hotel, and so the hotel right. did not, didn't want him to use it. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, but, yeah. but whatever the number means, like, I'm not, yeah. Uh, you would think it would mean something. I agree with that. You'd think Stanley Kubrick would have it mean something. Like, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, but it seems like it would be strange if it didn't symbolize something. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Um, I'm trying to see if it's called The Overlook in... can't stand it when a site makes me disable my ad blocker. Oh, yeah, me too. But yeah, and so that is a powerful... I don't know how you felt, but like if I'm if like if I feel like I'm drinking too much, maybe turn on The Shining. Does it does it scare oh. people sober? Like yeah. I don't, I don't yeah, yeah. it definitely yeah. does not make booze seem attractive in this film. No. So, um, wow, did you know in the book he doesn't use an axe; he uses a croquet mallet. Huh. I didn't know that. Sorry, I'm looking at a list of differences to see if the Overlook Hotel is one of them. But yeah, I completely agree. If you ever if you do ever struggle with alcoholism and then you uh, are thinking of, you know, how do they say, uh, falling off the wagon, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I think that, that's a good tip. Watch The Shining. Check it out. Let, let it, yeah, <laughs> take a look. Let it scare the shit out of you. Yeah. I mean, I really think that is what Stephen King was doing when he's like, and I, I don't, obviously I don't know. But uh, I, it's called the Stanley Hotel in the book. The Stanley That's Hotel. That's interesting. So okay. Like Stanley Kubrick. That's strange. <laughs> that's um, that's just think, a bizarre coincidence. Do you think that's why he picked it? He's like, this book is speaking no. to me. <laughs> Stanley Kubrick's like, it's the Stanley Hotel. Right. Like, Stan- I gotta Stanley Kubrick that. has The Shining, and he's actually <laughs> yeah. just overlooking yeah. uh, Stephen King's house, and is like, you need to write this story for me. Yeah, yeah. yeah Call creepy. it the Stanley um, Hotel. <laughs> Yeah, and St- Kubrick's like, keep drinking, keep drinking, yeah, keep Stephen. Dr- keep, yeah, Stanley Kubrick Write is is Stephen King's like ghost that haunts him. Yeah, yeah. he's the puppet master. <laughs> yeah, he, of he, Stephen King. He, he which is why he's trolling Stephen King. Stephen King throughout the movie. Uh, yeah, he's like, you didn't get this right. Yeah. <laughs> you got That's the so wrong thing out of the Stanley Hotel. <laughs> but it is in Colorado. The original place is in Colorado, which is why mm-hmm. uh, he wanted. Um, Oh, hold on one second. Nope, I misread. Uh, the real place is called the Stanley Hotel. Oh, okay. Well, My that mistake. makes more it sense. Is, it is called the Overlook Hotel. Okay. okay. The settings and character are influenced by King's personal experiences. Yikes. 
including his visit to the Stanley Hotel in 1974 and his struggle with alcoholism. Uh, but the yeah, book, but the it book is called the Overlook Hotel in the book. So, but it's he's, based on the Stanley Hotel in real life, which is where Stanley Kubrick had his team of interns go live at the Stanley Hotel for three months mm-hmm. and like take photographs and do research at the local libraries about the local history of the Colorado mm-hmm. Rockies and the indigenous genocide. So, see that's fact. and then he that, modeled the look of the Overlook Hotel after their photographs of the Stanley Hotel. That's actually what Stephen King's character is doing in the... Which is kind of interesting. So his character, instead of like writing a book about what? Un- unknown. We don't know what the character is writing a book about in the Stanley Kubrick version. In The Shining, he's writing a play, I think, about the hotel. So he's doing research about the huh. hotel, which brings about the ghost and you know the supernatural stuff. So, so I'm like, okay. Um, hmm. That's I never knew that. I never knew he, because obviously the only things that we see is all work is no play is makes Jack a dull boy, in, which is in all not, these crazy concrete poetry looking ways, which is in the movie but not in the book. In the book, that is not. Hmm. So it's as another because that is such a horrifying moment. Um, I think when I first saw that, and I saw that's what he was writing, that was just. That's scary. It's, that was scary. I mean, yeah. yeah, because it's like he's and, when, been and her crazy face the when they show it. Oh, that, you know what? That's another underlook or overlook uh, shot where they're below mm. Shelley Duvall while she's looking at the typewriter, and you see her horrified face. Yeah, and again and because there's a it. loss of control. Yeah, she's like holy. It's like she's both now has the power that she's aware that her husband is officially insane, mm. and she's also lost control because she's terrified, and she's like, "Holy shit, I'm stuck here with someone who's insane." Right. So again, subverting the the tilted undershot, which usually represents power, but in this case represents the rug being swept up from under your the lack of power. Uh, huh. Interesting. But yeah, I mean, like any Kubrick movie, like this is why it's fun to talk about because it's like the more we go into a detail, you go, oh wait, I never realized that. I'm glad that we said it out loud because that's another one. Um. Yeah, the all work and no play thing. Yeah, that's really startling. Like I said, I don't remember how young I was the first time I saw this. But yeah, that's one of those moments where even if you're not like really that afraid during the film, that's a moment where you're like, you go, you know, you kind of take a step back and you're like, oh, I wish that hadn't happened just now. (laughs) You know, maybe Um, we should do personally most terrifying moments in the film, past or present. Yeah, maybe that's a good. We could do a round. Oh, yeah, that's good. Um, okay. Of, of The Shining, obviously. Yeah, of The Shining, yeah. No, not just any old film. <laughs> not okay. any film. I guess if you have other... I guess if you... I don't know. I definitely don't have a list of all-time top terrifying moments. Uh, well, I... I mean, well, you, I... You go ahead. I have, I'll yeah, have to think about it. I have one, definitely, um, which is probably the iconic uh, one which seemed even more terrifying when I watched it this time because really I think Mm. my take was just longer um, because it's the where you see the woman who's naked and so I was just like she turns into the old woman right yes I was just like that was the first one I thought of I I was just like that is so horrifying it's never becomes less horrifying you could watch it a bunch of times and you're still just like ah it's so gross also it just makes me think like her ghost never leaves the bathtub 
Right. What is, she's just hanging so out. Like, I mean, he goes like that's one of the genius like slow build. I mean, this movie is such a slow build, but it's slow builds in so many different directions where it's like you're afraid of all these different like X, Y, and Z things in the hotel, namely room two thirty seven, right? Like they, you know, whether it's Danny riding his little tricycle, or whether it's Jack like going up and the door to two thirty seven is locked. Like it's a recurring thing of like, don't go in there. What's in there? Why can't you go in there? And it's just built up throughout the film. And then when he finally does, when Jack gets in, and also then when Danny rolls up on his tricycle and the room's already open which is people like to point out this is a sidebar people like to point out that um, the only quote unquote supernatural thing that happens in the film is when Jack Torrance is locked in the uh, storage closet and then it just unlocks like Grady the ghost lets him out right 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 my question is why why when Danny is riding around on his tricycle is the door magically unlocked and the key is in it he touches it before which I always thought kind of activated it but I agree with you it's supernatural like yeah, a, yeah we also have to admit this kid has the shining right so he can do things other people can't right right um, which is also supernatural so there's other supernatural things right. and then there's the drinking which is why I think it's silly to say it's the only supernatural thing that happens it's not right I mean and then there's, there's fucking he, ghosts <laughs> <laughs> right, which you know. yeah, there's and then who actually does strangle Danny? I mean, are you suggesting that? Mm. And see, you can interpret it that it's Jack Nicholson, sure, but not, but he's possessed. Well, do you well. think? Do you think it? I think it was the lady, not not Jack Nicholson that strangled yeah. the, strangled the yeah. boy. Yeah, and so because. But I mean, I if, agree. You, if you want to take it like, oh, the movie's about alcoholism, then yeah, Jack Nicholson's doing everything. Um, nothing well, supernatural. There's also, but that's yeah, not. Yeah. But you can't like that's. It's calling movie. It's, it's a metaphor for that, sure. But at the same time, the reality of the movie is telling us that it was the woman, not Jack Nicholson. Mm -hmm. I, I think. Right. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And I think one of the things that, again, I don't know how much of this is in the book, but one of the things that at least I know the movie is playing with is like Kubrick's obviously aware of the overarching metaphor of alcoholism in the in the story uh, but since he's adding all these other layers like the the various horrors and atrocities of man and you know what would it actually be like to be in a haunted house that has a bunch of tortured ghosts um, who want you to join them right uh, and so one of the things that he's doing I think is you know the point I'm trying to get to, the lady in the bathtub, uh, did she or did she not, or was she in control of or in possession of Jack Torrance's, not even just body, but his decisions, right? Uh, which we could call a, a possession of, of sorts. Um, or did, did was he just so traumatized from seeing the woman and drunk that he then snapped, lost his mind, tried to kill his kid? You know, both things are equally plausible. Uh, it's whether or not you want to believe in the supernatural in the film or not. Um, or rather, the supernatural in real life that they're showing in the film, whatever. Uh, what I'm trying to get at is... <laughs> that, that is such know, a weird, a, that's so such a weird thing, because it's like, how could you... Well, it's making you confront it, right? But, 
I I agree that the movie gives you a scapegoat to saying this is all some, somehow com, um, cabin fever. Like I believe that. Like mm-hmm. Jack Nicholson. But the fact that the kid starts with the weirdness before they even go there tells right. you a different story. So that's why I'm just mm-hmm. like, even if you go with that explanation, the kid is starts is supernatural from the beginning of the story. Right. Like he. Well, that I mean, I think. He, if a, if he a makes the prediction skeptic. that we know. He's like, mm-hmm. oh, he's about to get the job, and he does. And it's like, right, so right. we already had that. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, excellent point about the prediction and the job thing. That's a good point. Because that's a good thing that I I have seen skeptic, like super skeptics on the internet try to try to fit this supernatural film into their personal narrative of the supernatural does not, like categorically doesn't exist. And so they try to rationalize it as, no, this is just about trauma, this is just about alcoholism, and it is about those things. But when somebody goes so far as to negate all of the, negate the fictional world of the supernatural in, in this story, um, it's kind of, I think it does a disrespect to the literature because when you try to say, nope, it's, it's none of that, it's just about trauma, it's just about psychology, it's just about alcoholism, even I, I'm getting to the point where I saw somebody on the internet try to say, this was years ago, try to say that no, Danny Torrance does not have The Shining. He ha- he's in psychosis because he's been beaten and or molested by his father, and that's making him believe he has The Shining. Which obviously this person never seen Doctor Sleep, but <laughs> uh, I think that's just this is this is one of those things. Like I'm a skeptic, you know that, um, but. This is one of those things where skepticism sort of teeters off the the far end and like the rationalism becomes like not rational anymore. Um, but yeah, I, I think we completely agree about that, about that. And I think Danny yeah. making the accurate prediction, although people make ac- you know correct sure. guesses all the time, but he's like shaking and like foaming at the mouth in different scenes when he's like right. seeing what's happening in other parts of the hotel. You know, I mean, this this kid is not okay. <laughs> he, uh, yeah. Is he going through some kind of, like, childhood psychosis because of trauma? Yes. But has that, in this universe, tapped him into something spooky and supernatural? Yes, that's also true. You know? Well, it's, I mean, when you have Stephen King, like, writing the story about alcoholism, but the world being very much you know supernatural like why like why can't you have both and it, it is kind of silly mm-hmm. for someone to be like oh well it has to be it's like no it doesn't it's like the story doesn't like it makes more sense that the supernatural is a metaphor for the trauma than that the trauma is behind the curtain and like we're not getting mm-hmm. so, so 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 that argument would almost have to be with the perspective the pov is from the kid so we're seeing things from his perspective and I'm like hmm. how could like that doesn't work at all you know because um, we have so many scenes without him you know but that like yeah because you that's what you'd have to be like okay well then the parents themselves probably wouldn't have believed in anything supernatural at all and this is just all what he used to kind of I, I guess I'm just trying to understand that perspective um, yeah it, no I, I think we agree on this point that like it, it can be both there's no there's no conflict to believing that both things are true. There is trauma and alcohol has happening and childhood psychosis and there's also supernatural things happening concurrently. He, like these 
these two things are not mutually exclusive. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And I'm like, you see, you see Jack Nicholson's character get triggered um, at the talk of him hurting Danny. And um, to me, that is the his breaking point. So I'm curious, do you agree that that's his breaking point? Um, because Sorry, which which part is his breaking point? When the when his wife, when Shelley Duvall accuses him with a look that he that he hurt Danny, when she uh. like runs into the hotel, I always thought it was like that's the breaking point because that's when he goes, and then is this is know, also man. the uh, this is I mean, also I, the I, weird I thing. This, this is where he, when he goes to finally drink the make believe alcohol, which is another thing. Like, how is he? Oh, is yeah. is this supernatural? Alcohol. alcohol yeah i always wondered well, one that of the too. puns that i wanted to get at first yeah. of all i think i completely agree uh i don't know if that's the breaking point i don't know but it's definitely one of them mm. i can see why anyone would think that that is like the straw in the camel's back thing uh i think there's many breaking points i think that's what happens to people who do lose their mind is like there is there's repeated instances right. of being pushed over the edge in various ways or or being confronted with a truth you're in denial about in so many ways, right? Because, um, I mean, when he when he tries to rationalize him drunkenly hurting Danny, he says, I just tried to pull him away or something, right? Mm. And then I, I think we're led to believe that he, like, maybe broke his arm or something. Yeah, I forget that's the, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, dislocated, his, dislocated his shoulder, I think is what. Right, there you yeah. go. There you go. Um, which is something that someone whose frontal lobe is poisoned by alcohol and it does a a brief physical gesture uh, out of anger, let's not forget, uh, is completely, this is something that happens all the time, unfortunately. You know, not just to kids, but to, well, we don't have to get into it, but a lot, a lot of people who know alcoholics have dealt with very similar things, and I'm sure, you know, what day is it, Saturday? I'm sure some cop somewhere in America or anywhere had to deal with this last night. Mm-hmm. You know, this is just the nature of alcohol. It's fucked. Uh, and specifically the nature of, like, male aggression and alcoholism in males being so prevalent. Uh, but I digress. Um, you were making an excellent point about... Or your question was the breaking point. Yeah. Right? And is yeah, the like alcohol said, that's real? one of them. That's, I feel like that's weird. Oh, that, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, one of the puns that I wanted to make earlier about the woman in the bathtub, did she, mm. did she not possess him, right? Mm. One of the puns that, that is not said in the film that we can make is alcohol is called spirits. Yeah. There are many, there are even Native American tribes uh, who got murdered, uh, who believed that to, you know, harvest their own things and let them forget, ferment, and make their own alcohol actually gave, allowed them to be better in tune with quote-unquote the spirit world or their ancestors or whatever and so whatever it was they there's been a belief for not just native americans but for thousands thousands of years that for whatever reason fermented uh liquefied plants i.e alcohol numbs the brain in such a way that you are then more receptive to supernatural entities or whatever we want to call it uh, mm. So there's also that. It's like, are these ghosts giving him ghost alcohol? I don't know, man. I don't know. Um, but is he drunkenly? Oh, is but he, he drunkenly seeing a hot woman in the bath? But that who, is, who I guess, is eternally stuck in the bath, and then comes out, and he's like, 
like in a, I mean, again, Kubrick's like a Freudian, right? But, and you, so but you can see now that, see, like, it's like a bad dream. He's he interacting with woman. the spirits, which is just kind of like completely on the nose. But it's like, yeah, he interacts with yeah. the spirits, which is like, oh, he's drinking alcohol. So just him interacting with the ghost itself is just right. The the, and it's, the it's also his own from. past. Right. It's the ghost of his alcoholic former self. too. But, but there's no alcohol there. So that is one of the other you things. You know that. That if you, well, we saw the scene at the beginning of the movie where they're like, there's no alcohol here. And then he's like, oh, good. We take, we make sure to take it all before. It's a dry bar. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, because of the winter. Like, they go out of the way to tell you that there's no alcohol there. So it's always just But like, also, if he's in psychosis, which he is, by the time that you're hallucinating, let's give him the benefit of the doubt, hallucinating a bar, a ghost bartender who's pouring you ghost whiskey, uh, by the time you're that far gone, because he's obviously crazy by that point, whether it's really happening or not, whether he's imagining it, whether there's actually ghosts, which I think in the movie there's actually ghosts, um, it doesn't matter. You're fucking nuts, dude. <laughs> Once a ghost bartender is serving you drinks, I'm so sorry, true. man. You're yeah. over the line. Uh, it doesn't matter if that whiskey's real. Your your imagination is so far receded into itself and so far gone fuck yeah man drink the ghost whiskey because you're gonna your brain is gonna pretend that it's drunk anyway and that's how you're gonna rationalize murdering your family you know i mean like i said jack nicholson's the villain which you would go on the rector is not the right thing to do absolutely well i first of all i would not take a secluded hotel trip i think most people after seeing the shining since 1980 i think most american families and adult men would not accept the offer to be in an abandoned hotel with their family for winter. I think that is that is like predictive programming. This has prevented that from occurring. Well, so thank you, Stephen King and Kubrick. I actually just offer, accepted a job that. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm leaving tomorrow. Uh, um, oh boy. Yeah. So I hope you're going. To, I hope you're flying solo on that one. Please do not take your wife and kid. No, I figured why not, you know. Okay. Right. <laughs> no, it is kind of just like, they never, but it is weird. Like, I, I would have loved to see a transition. I guess that is my criticism, where it's like, I think Jack Nicholson is an amazing actor, so I was like, really? Mm-hmm. I feel like this film is probably, I don't know, I think this might be my favorite Jack Nicholson performance. I was like, really thinking about it. I was like, it's up it, there. I was like, is there anything I mean, that is better than this? Because yeah. I think he elevates know, the material in a way because even though, like I've kind of pointed out, the character's a little unhinged already, like he has mm-hmm. these very specific facial expressions for his different, like he's okay or he's crazy. Like, mm-hmm. it's, I mean, you can really see it in his forehead and yeah. his eyes yep. and just like, it, um, like that moment when she just she just looks like did you do it like she doesn't say but she's mm-hmm. just like and then he just his looks reaction. yeah his and it just his facial expression just changes and he's just like and it's just like he's he's lost it he's crazy and then mm-hmm. when he's at the bar and she runs over and she's just like oh i learned it's not you a woman did it and then <laughs> and then um he he just looks at her and sh- that was enough and she's just like yeah backed he can up. convey he could yeah. have been a silent film actor yeah yeah definitely because he can convey with just his faith i mean yeah the, i think we've talked about this before the sheer on, maybe it was the passenger yeah. one. Oh yeah maybe uh, so. but i mean for me i mean jay nicholson is just one of the greats of all time yeah. you know people talk about 
De Niro, Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, Brando, mm-hmm. you know, pick, pick somebody. Mm-hmm. Uh, but sure. to me, I mean, maybe Tom it's Cruise. because of the generation we grew yeah. Maybe it's because one of the generation we grew up in. Um, but pick pick any of the great actors of history and like for Lawrence me, Olivier. Lawrence Short. Uh, for me, Jack Nicholson is just one of the all time greats. Will Smith. Always will be. I mean, he's just one of my favorite actors of all time. Um, I just love. I mean, this is why you know the like, we talked. The Passenger is one of my favorite films. Chinatown. He's also in some masterpieces he went out of the way to work with the best of the best you know like like a Kubrick or Polanski or Antonioni or whoever um yeah I just think he's a really smart guy I think he's a really not just smart actor I think he's a very intuitive actor and I think he's very good at what he does I mean I brought up before uh I forget probably on the passenger one of my favorite quotes about acting ever is from Jack Nicholson and he says you work with a lot of actors where the script says to check your watch and look at the time and none of them actually look at what time it is on their watch and he's like and that was part of his whole method was like if your character looks at the time and wonders what time it is you better believe that you're not just looking at your wrist you better actually be there and be present and see that it is you know 8:48 and 12 seconds, and the the TikTok is is moving on your on your wrist, and I just love that that little example that he gave is like most people look at their watch and they don't know what time it is. That's the difference between a, a good actor and a, and a you know, whatever. Um, but yeah, that quote always stuck. I think Jack Nicholson is just the best. Shout out to Jack Nicholson because you were you're a master, dude. Yeah, and. Um he did some great movies for sure I would say this oh, yeah. one he was able to do something a little bit more I don't know if I want to say nuanced. I, I do think he got typecasted and started doing a lot of the same kind of roles um, but I guess he's just kind of reti- I guess yeah. he's kind of retired eventually um, I think once you do so many masterpieces in a row you're like alright he's kind I of a, what I needed to do he's kind of a Brando-esque where he just is like F everybody at certain a certain point um, I'm done yeah. But but um I mean, yeah. But yeah. I mean, Spielberg had a funny take on this too, which I think we talked about before. Yeah. Spielberg thought that Jack was too over the top. Right. And then Kubrick was like, "Well, how else would a crazy person act?" Right. Well, also right, right. also I think it's you could definitely say that that's Kubrick's vision of the film, not necessarily Jack's doing so many takes right. of every shot. We don't know how many right. nuanced and smaller versions that he did of everything. You know, Kubrick mm-hmm. picked the big ones for whatever reason. Right. You know, and so yeah. Anyway, the, like that's but where even then, even with the shots that he, you know, if they did a hundred takes and he picked take number eighty-seven, mm. the way it's cut together is so like it's, tempered. Yeah, it's so mad. Like for somebody, for you, for you, constantly showing somebody losing their mind and then going quote unquote over the top, like it's so yeah tempered. I think is the word I want. It's so like very gradual like again even if he's picking take four and one and one thing and then cutting to take 87 like chef's kiss it's just right you know Um, yeah the performances don't seem and the way like and i guess we just talked about how it's called the overlook hotel which i guess is part of the original but um and i think we can probably wrap up um but i would say i would say i was really thinking about like how 
in general the film is we're looking far away and we're getting closer and it does that mm -hmm. in time and in the visuals so we have the visual of the camera moving closer and farther away um, in You're the right. opening yeah, yeah, yeah. but also in time where you can see it's like then all of a sudden it's like next day and then it's one month later and then we get to the story right. so so much mm -hmm. of the story moves quickly through time so you might be like oh not a lot happened but if you if you realize mm -hmm. it's like they we went through a month i think it's at least a month if not longer of them getting there and then it's snowing and like and we just saw that in just quick cuts black you know to mm -hmm. black and then that was it you yeah, know. one of my favorite ones is it is when it just goes like Thursday, and it yeah. just shows them running through the snow, and then he's just standing there not looking at anything, right? Doing the doing the, doing the Kubrick glare, yeah. and that's literally all it shows for Thursday, right? I exactly. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> but you know, you're right. There's you're right. There's a telescope. There's a micro macro, right? Like, telescopic microscopic thing that you're right. He's playing with, like both visually and narratively. Yeah, Absolutely. so it's like we're zoomed out, and then we're and then we get to the one moment, which I guess I'll, I'll just wrap up and I'll do, I guess I can do my review and then I, you know, we can go mm. back and forth. Um, but I will say that the end does always just kind of feel like not super satisfying to me. Um, if I have, you feel like the story's not over. I know, exactly. I feel like the story's not over and I feel like it's a little unearned that he just froze to death and he just got lost. I'm like, I want more mm. of a conflict I wonder how he dies there. in the book. Um, it's similar. It's a uh, no. It's the opposite. It's the opposite. He blows up the hotel, and so part of his oh part of his job is to keep track of like the boiler or something. And so, mm -hmm. in a moment of like defiance to save his family, I think he kill he destroys the hotel. So I think it's the like the opposite. Huh. Like and he ends up doing the right thing in the end, as opposed to um, you know. Anyway. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, and and I, I think I want to point out one thing we didn't mention. We talked about, you know, like you said, there are many murders that we see visually in the film. Right. You know, the different ghosts and how they got murdered and stuff. Uh, but the only murder that happens in the film, which I think is a meta comment, throughout the movie, Kubrick is commenting on horror films. And let's not forget, around this time, his favorite film was Eraserhead. Uh, the David Lynch film was one of. Kubrick's favorite films, he actually bought a reel of it and would show it to people and we're like, have you seen this? You gotta see this. We gotta find this guy and give him money to make another one. And he did track down David Lynch and then Mel Brooks actually gave him money uh, to make The Elephant Man. And The Elephant Man came out in 1980, the same year as The Shining. Hmm. Uh, which Kubrick had a hand in. Uh, and what I wanted to get at is one thing that he's doing and I think being so influenced by Eraserhead as being a, a different kind of horror film uh, doesn't follow the usual tropes. One thing that he does throughout the film is he, he sort of mocks horror films and makes like a meta commentary. Uh, one, Scatman Crothers, the only murder in the film, the only black man in the film. And of course, one of the terrible ho tropes of especially 1970s horror is if you are black or you have sex, you're going to die first, right? Black person always dies. And so he does that in the film. Um, and I don't even think that character's in... I have to... I just saw it on the Wikipedia, but I don't think the character is black in the in the book The Shining. Kubrick did that. Oh, really? Um, well, it is yeah, kind of an offensive character. Um. 
Oh yeah, he's doing that on purpose. Um, although Scatman Crowther is a very intelligent person, and I have he's no a great actor. Was, like yeah, yeah his performance is, is, is amazing and um, it's fantastic. So, and I'm sure that he's he's the kind of guy who probably was playing chess with Kubrick on set, like George C. Scott was. Scatman Crowther is a very intelligent person. I'm um, impressed with his performance in like oh, yeah. with how much he still seems about like everybody else seems tired and like drained i always mm-hmm. felt like he and the other characters too but he's in the movie more where he doesn't take yeah. on that sense of negative energy um where the other right. characters do so it's like with so many think, takes i'm just like wow impressed right. yeah, yeah and i think one of the reasons scatman crothers is my favorite to Calloran is my favorite character not only because he's the adult who has the shining who's passing on wisdom to the kid and being filling that mentor role in a very weird and specific way um of like you could even do like analogies to like autism and stuff and like well you know if you have this particular type of way of looking at the world if you have somebody who's you know 30 years older who's been through having to deal with the world that way as well it would be nice to get some advice of hey people are going to look at you differently here's some chips and tricks that i've learned which is essentially what scatman crother's role he's playing a sort of surrogate father figure but in a really you can't not like it his one his performance is really good and you're right about he seems to be unaffected by it maybe because he works there and so he's just used to like yep shit's haunted <laughs> what are you gonna do uh, he almost has like an it is what it is take on like yep these things are real just gotta live with it um, but yeah I think one of the things that Kubrick does to to irritate the audience is one of the most likable characters in the maybe the only likable character in the film who's like completely innocent and not only is innocent but is virtuous and is like trying to help this kid who's in a very dark place right Um, and again is the only person who tries to go save them and drives through the snow to go help the family that's not his family so he's he's an extremely likable and virtuous and innocent character uh and he's the only person who gets killed which is supposed to bother us and it does because i mean again he's my favorite character in the film just because he represents all these things that jack torrance is not you know and then of course kubrick's playing with the whole thing like i said that the black guy always gets killed the token black person in especially 70s horror all the way through 90s horror black guy always gets killed first uh terrible trope in American horror films that Kubrick's aware of and he's not poking fun at it he's saying this is this is bullshit um, and there's other stuff yeah I think I made my point I love Scatman Crothers it's a one of the best performances in the film other than Jack Nicholson I mean all the Shelley, Shelley Duvall and the kid too all the performances are great uh, but I think he's the most not relatable char- redeemable character in the film uh, yeah I, I could go on and on about, you know, kind of how he represents the anti-Jack Torrance to me, as like the real father figure. Yeah, you know, he's hey, he hey. was a caretaker in a in a in a way that Jack couldn't be. Um, mm-hmm. All right, yeah, I think yeah. I feel like I'm I'm pretty like I feel like this is a love film, and I hear your passion. A lot of people are passionate about mm-hmm. this film. Um, I still think I feel like ultimately a little mixed, um, even though I really mm. like the film overall. I guess 
um, you're always tempted with the Kubrick film to compare it to some of his other films, and I guess yeah. in my mind, it's like a lot of the other ones, or the, my favorite, I guess, Kubrick's, um, just feel a little bit more cohesive um, as a piece. Oh. Uh, where this one, it's one of those films that the individual, the individual components, I think, outshine the whole. I get. I guess that uh, outshine. Outshine. Yes. Yes. Uh, purposely. No. Uh, but I would say, like, if you ask, I think this is Jack Nicholson's best performance. I also think this is probably one of the most iconic performances. I don't know. You want to say the past fifty years or hundred years, even like it's it's up there as just a great performance. Um, and so mm -hmm. there's that. And then the. Man, do you think this is a better performance than Chinatown? Yeah, I think so. I think so wow. because I think Chinatown's Chinatown's more more one note. Like I don't see as much of like these different different oh. characters. Like he's, I mean, he. I, he I, I understand what you say. He's a more complex character. He is, but but that character doesn't change throughout the film. And I guess you could argue that this character doesn't change. He changes. It's more of a subtle. He's crazy thing. from the beginning. He just shows it more as the film goes on. Exactly. Exactly. Where Chinatown, yeah. Yeah. he's like consistently almost the same temperament throughout the entire film. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's true. Um, well, Chinatown's just a more restrained thing. Yeah. Absolutely. But yeah. Uh, up until the slapping and but that's like that's a question is this nicholson's best performance i don't know yeah i i think it i feel like way it up is, there it's it's up there for me and um the visuals in the world and i guess you could say the production design and the dp and like it's just it's so good like the uh, when you were i think you were using the using the restroom and i was talking about the using the restroom scene and that just the mm -hmm. red the the red Ugh. walls in that scene. I'm just like, it's so visually appealing. And then, like, I could just get stills of Jack Nicholson at, on that typewriter every time we come in and look at him mm -hmm. in that big room on the typewriter. That's just such an iconic um, scene and moment in the film. Right. Um, right. And the depth, I mean, like you said, the bat, like the depth of field that he's able to achieve by, yeah. like, where he sets the camera in the bathroom and, like, the red, like, the receding toilets and sinks and they're like positioned like not quite in the middle so you can really see how far away they like the level of depth that he's able to create is really great anyway no it's it's like a scene that you shouldn't remember but it's like it there's obviously the blood um the iconic blood scene and um mm -hmm. and that is a great scene because it is like how what a cool way to create suspense of like i'm just gonna i'm just gonna Sorry. put the camera he, like i'm gonna do all these moving shots but then i'm gonna put the camera and be still and then like just do a flash of something like that's that's the trick he does so much throughout this film is like okay this isn't this shouldn't be scary <laughs> but all i'm gonna do is just show like move the camera all the time then i'm gonna put it still and then i'm gonna do a flash of the girls are there. Oh, oh, now they're not. The girls are there. Oh, now they're dead in the hall. Now they're not. And then just a cut to right. his face, where we just see Danny's face, like horror. You know, with, like what Alfred Hitchcock mm -hmm. would have done throughout his films. You know, so right. it's yeah. I mean, I like it how we elevates both the level, yes. I guess, of like what horror can do, and like with right. very little. Well, I think yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and this, we both mentioned this in different ways earlier. Like, you know, I talked about how it's a slow burn, and then, like, in the last half hour, 
he right. like all the horrific stuff happens, right? Like it just it's just an assault. Yeah. Everywhere, everywhere Danny turns, there's something else that's creepy. You know, there's I mean, there's that thing, uh, that moment where it's like, every, like I said, everywhere you turn, every character turns in different. You know, uh, Shelley Duvall is running away. Uh, the kids are trying to run away on his tricycle, and every room they come to, there's something horrifying. Whether it's the the girls. Whether it's Lady in the Bathtub, I and mean, we agree the Lady in the Bathtub is probably the most disturbing thing. Yeah. To for me, you know, anyway. I tried yeah. to get into that Freudian thing of like it's such a nightmare to be in room two thirty seven. We're like, oh, there's a beautiful woman exiting the tub naked. You know, sexual desire. I'm gonna cheat on my wife and embrace her, and then as soon as I make that transgression, holy shit, it's a rotting old dead old woman. You know, and that's you know again the whole again Kubrick's a Freudian the whole fear and desire dreams thing. But one thing we didn't bring up is the guy wearing a bear mask giving somebody head. Oh yeah, that uh, the almost the last thing. And apparently in the book, that's like a more character, and that's like a bigger part of the story. Um, wow. I, but I think it's great that it's just one it jarring. It comes image off as a non sequitur totally in the in the film. You're like, yes. Right. Well, it's because that's when the ghosts are fully taking over. Yeah. The yeah. Hotel, that's what. That's when we get this rapid fire, fucked up imagery. It's because all the ghosts are revealing themselves all at once to everybody. And that's like, yeah, the guy that's in the furry outfit, <laughs> that's a that's a crazy one. And then, of course, suddenly Grady has, like, the knife in his head or whatever, right? I, it's just Ugh. blood on his face, right? Or am I wrong? I don't remember. I thought, I thought was there just... was a... I could be wrong. There could, I thought there was a weapon stuck in his skull. Maybe, and then, yeah, like maybe said, so. The, the elevator also represents, like, the blood of the Indians that this hotel was built on and this sort of thing. Uh, there's so much. Um, anyway, pretty good yeah, movie. Yeah, no, and that's why it, it. I can't deny how much I think the film is a good film and I would recommend it. And um, it, But it's almost more... It, it comes off to me as almost like Kubrick's doing an intellectual... Uh, exercise like he's almost like what's my version of a horror film you know and that this is what mm -hmm. it this is what it is uh, and so he could be doing that with all of his films for all I know um, but this one comes That's off true. just a little bit more like a little forced a little calculated I guess is what I mean when I'm like it's not like I don't see everything coming together in the way that I see a lot of his other stuff um, hmm holistically yeah, from, and you're and a lot of people me, that's what makes it consistent exactly yeah. and a lot of people have that opinion they're like oh that's what i like about it like you have all these different interpretations available because of all of these other types of imagery or whatever you want to say whatever you want to call it isn't that also um, true of eyes wide shut though um i mean or like it op it lends itself to any interpretation i mean i think i think that is i think you are absolutely right that people interpret eyes wide shut in various ways but for me like the the level or the I, I think it's a little bit beyond the surface level but the main level that the film hits at for me is very clear you know now there's a lot of different ways to interpret the story sure but I think that the the main thing to me is is a is a very much in that same vein or that same theme theme so I don't yeah I don't see the but it's also, I think it comes down to with just authenticity from the author, and it's like, uh, I think Eyes Wide Shut is 
is in a lot of ways Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. It's his most personal film. And so that mm. film seems very much about something v close to Kubrick. And uh, so there's an authenticity. I mean, that's, I mean, I, I can be completely wrong, but that's why, you know, that's my favorite Kubrick and Vertigo is my favorite Hitchcock. I mean, that's why those films stand out to me is because they do seem a little bit more personal than a lot of their other work. Um, so my, I'm just going to go direct to my rating because I feel like we're way past our short time. Uh, but my rating is definitely a plus storm cloud lightning um, wow. axe. Yeah, maybe an axe too. Um, so it's all of those. You know, I will say this is one that really very easily could have been a star and might be a star in the future. Um, but for me, it still feels a little bit incomplete. Um, your review. Well, it's tricky. We, we've talked before about how... we I think we, we've done our favorite Kubrick films when we did Eyes Wide Shut. Right. Um, yours... I think we both included 2001 and Eyes Wide Shut, yeah. and then yours was Strange Love, and mine was The Shining. Right. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah. Now, I, I have a... I don't think it's controversial, but I have... Other people have told me I have a very controversial take on Strange Love, which if we ever do it, well, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it. Um, but I I don't hold Strange Love to the same esteem that other people seem to. Um, I'm going to go ahead... And I think I said my my favorite Cooper film is Eyes Wide Shut. Number two, definitely 2001, because I have a lot of nostalgia from it from when I was a kid. And number three has got to be The Shining, because uh, it's just one of those ones where anytime I revisit it, revisit it, I do think. I mean, you could tell how you know how passionately I spoke about it that I just love this film. And uh, for me, it's got to be an Infinity. <laughs> I feel like you've just been giving every movie an infinity recently. Mm -hmm. This is a film that I will always be thrilled by. I think generations from now, mm. people will continue to unpack its its clues and its possible interpretations and have this conversation and hopefully uncover even more interesting things that we didn't even consider. I think it's just one of those movies. Yep. Mm. Um, and I, I would not say that about every Kubrick movie. For instance, I don't think Strange Love. that's the case. Mm. Uh, not to shit on it because there are many good things about it uh, and I've gone on record as saying before I think that Full Metal Jacket is a much scarier movie than this is mm. for different reasons which I do not look forward to us doing that on the podcast because I do not like watching that movie mm. because it traumatized me as a kid uh, anyway oh and one last thing Jack Nicholson's best performance I think this might be you might be right this is the best one in terms of Jack Nicholson getting typecast as crazy Jack Nicholson. Probably the best one. Uh, but for me, his best performance playing against type gotta be The Passenger. The Passenger. He's uh, so not Jack Nicholson in that movie. He's so subdued and he's so... I know, I forget that that's him in it. I'm like, oh, that's Jack Yeah, Nicholson. he's, so, he's yeah. so in ennui and he's so like jaded and separate from everything and not engaging and just sort of melancholily like commenting on things and I just love how he plays completely against type and it's one of why it's one of my favorite uh, performances by him 
Is it the best? I don't know, but I really like it. So yeah, The Shining, definitely an infinity. This movie will always be interesting. <laughs> okay. Um, the scientific rating is oh. is a star for the The Shining. Definitely, I think hmm. it's been I think it's been on the AFI list and in probably Sight and Sound. Um, it's also just one of those rare films that is kind of considered a horror film that people also think is good where there's really not a ton of films like that which I think in a lot of ways um, Psycho and The Shining you could have a lot of similarities between those two films um, ultimately I think whenever I think about like what, what are the two most respected horror films probably The Shining probably Psycho even though you could argue Exorcist in The Exorcist yeah yeah, that was that's the other yeah. one, um, and Rosemary's Baby. Rosemary's Baby's up there for me too, um, but anyway. Right. Yeah, but I think all those uh, films. Yeah, Rosemary's Baby is way. You're right. Rosemary's Baby is way up there in terms. Of, I mean, that might be the top five actually. Yeah, I think uh, The Shining, Psycho, Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby. What was the other one? I don't remember now. We talked the ex. We said the Exorcist, right? Yeah. 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 Okay, so we only said four. Well, there's. I feel like we should round it out. Psycho, there's got to be another class. What's the Texas Chainsaw? No. Texas Chainsaw is way up there. I mean, that movie. I don't even like. I I watched it one time and I'm good. Yeah, that's too scary. It gives me the fucking creeps. I guess I don't like. Yeah, I guess I like more whatever atmospheric. Like, I like horror films like yeah. The Shining and The Exorcist and even, you know, stuff that's more, uh, like, even, like, something like, what, Somerville was the big one, and then... Um, Midsommar? Midsommar. Yeah, not Somerville. Yeah. Midsommar, and then uh, there was a... Have that, you seen Hereditary? Oh, yeah, the Hereditary. There's those three of those, right? And I think I've seen maybe all of them. I don't, I don't know. Um, that guy's only made two movies. Ari Aster made Hereditary and Midsommar. Oh, then what am I thinking of? There's another... There's a series of horror movies that people like. Never, yeah, never mind. Saw. Uh, no. I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> no, they're more recent, uh, and they are cool. I've, I'm like, who? Hmm. who's in it's, It Follows? Did you ever see It Follows? Yeah. Yeah, that was a long time ago. But um, That's a, cl a clever one. Um, I guess I'm just thinking of like a more uh, recent, more recent atmospheric really one. Horror. Yeah, lighthouse yeah. isn't really horror. Um, all right. Well, I guess uh, what are we doing well, next, next week? week? Are we doing Doctor Sleep or did you want to? Yeah, I'm gonna have to. Well, I, I'm gonna tell you. I'm not gonna pick it, but okay. I was tempted to pick Big Lebowski. Really? Just to totally change the yeah. To change just the totally change the vibe. I was thinking, oh, I haven't seen that in years. I'd like to rewatch that. That's a really good, funny one. But okay. you know, after this, I get I gotta go with Doctor Sleep. <laughs> okay, I'm so it'll be this is episode seven hundred nine, so it'll be like seven oh nine point two, I guess. Okay, we'll just do Doctor Sleep as a follow up to The Shining. I'm down. Um, I because especially I'm after watching Room Two Three Seven, I'm so I'm so down to to do Doctor Sleep now. It's great. I don't know if we're going to keep doing... Like, I, I'm just going to tell you, my picks are going to be just based on the recent films that I've purchased. So all of my picks are just okay. going to be... So they'll be you purchased Big Lebowski lately? I, I, I haven't. I have not. Uh, okay. Think about it. Um, it's it's a great Coen Brother film, for sure. Uh, I can't say it's, like, my favorite, but um, it is inarguably... I don't think we've done any Coen Brothers, except for the Macbeth, which we haven't done yet. Yeah, we've just talked about doing a Coen Brothers film. 
yeah, yeah. I don't I don't know like Blood Simple man Blood Simple is really good Blood Simple or would we even do something like Raising Arizona um, something I'd different I'd be fine with doing I, I hardly do ever revisit different. their stuff yeah and so like I'd be fine with doing anything by them mm. honestly it, uh, it is kind of Big Lebowski is such a fun intro to their world that yeah. is true Big Lebowski is probably the most interesting one to talk about. Probably that in Fargo, or probably in no yeah. no country. I guess I would put those three as probably the more interesting ones to talk about, even though I like all of their films. Um, and I do like the comedy Raising Arizona, and um, yeah, one oh of my Brother mom's favorite there. movies. Oh, is Raising Arizona? Raising Arizona, yeah. Hmm. Uh, Barton Fink is also really really fun. Yeah, Barton Fink. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's a bunch of I, you know, Kubrick only has what eight nine movies, so right. I can easily pick what my top three are. Coen Brothers, I, I, it'd be a little trickier to pick my favorite ones. Anyway, we're doing Doctor Sleep. Doctor Sleep for sure, and uh, um, but I'm definitely down to do a Coen Bros movie in the future. Okay, I think we should. Uh, but you're you said. Just so I'm mentally prepared, you're gonna pick one of the ones you recently bought. Yeah, films I recently what, you bought, bought, like two on 4K. Kubricks and two Wells's movies or something. Yeah, I can here. I, I can just what pull up they? my recent purchases. I'll t I'll tell you what I've, mm -hmm. I've bought recently. Um, I know one was Touch of Evil. Yeah, the Touch of Evil I definitely want to watch. It's a 4K Touch of yeah. Evil. With, Citizen Kane, with, which I don't want to do. We don't have to redo Citizen Kane. Um, we've already done it. We've already done it, but I've, we've never talked about the 4K version, so it would be that um, opportunity. Um, nah. The New World. I just bought The New World. Ooh. Um, and then 2001 as well we just talked mm -hmm. about. So I do I do want to do 2001 and Touch of Evil. Is 2001 Couples Arguing? No. But the... Hal is the... I guess the, the kind the of. Wife. Hal is the wife. <laughs> Hal is the wife. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, 2001... Yeah, we could talk about it sometime, but it, it is a interesting um i did buy the the new the michael fassbrenner version of macbeth you haven't seen that and then I not. and then i bought the criterion of magnificent amberson which i haven't rewatched in forever um yeah i've only ever seen the vhs of that and then wells's othello i bought and then polanski's mm. macbeth um, and then I bought about the South Park movie. It was really cheap on Blu-ray. Oh, which I watched recently. I know. I would so, love to do that. So we have, I was like, uh, in our musical, we'll have to do the South Park movie sometime. I was like, that. Oh yeah, yeah. one of my favorite movies of yeah. all time. Yeah, it, South Park movie. When you were talking about it, I was like, it is a great musical. It's perfect. Yeah, it's so good. Um, yeah. Let me see what I've bought recently. It was only seven dollars if you want to buy the Blu-ray of South Park. Really? Yeah. Oh, I might do that. Yeah. Uh, let's see, I bought some herbal teas. I bought a couple books. Bought a Ursula K. Le Guin and a Derrida book. Uh, oh, also, I discovered a... Well, I didn't discover... Oh, my most recent purchases were Altman's The Company, which we didn't do. Uh, I bought a, a Blu-ray of The Passenger. Okay. Just because. Nice. Because I didn't have one. Uh, I bought Fellini's last film, The Voice of the Moon, which I'd never seen. And then, you're not going to like this. Oh, it says delivered today. I get it. So it's here. I bought M. Night Shyamalan's six film collection. 
on Blu-ray. <laughs> that, that that surprises me. Not, okay. Not kidding. Okay. Yeah. The six-film collection. Um, what what is included in? Uh, Unbreakable Signs, The Visit, Split, Glass, and Old. I only bought it because Old is in. The, I actually really like the trilogy Unbreakable Split, Ga- right, Split Glass. Right. You told me before. Yeah. I've told you this before, and I I've seen Signs, and I didn't care for it. I've never seen The Visit. Uh, I also already know the twist, so I'm not looking forward to it. And then his new one called Old was included in this. And it was just a really cheap for a six-disc thing. Uh, but I'm going to look up, let's see, South Park, bigger, Blu-ray. I'm going to cut this out. Crazy. It's, it's I mean, I already like, have a Blu-ray of Cannibal the Musical. So. Yeah. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not trying well. to encourage anybody to just purchase movies, but I guess I, I, like, to buy, I like to buy things... As opposed to buy, buying things that I consume, I'm like, ah, you know, I like spending money on, on movies and music still, physical things media. Like. Yeah. Yeah. And, it is and if you're ever really cool. in a bind, you can always take them to a, the local CD and movie shop, but and you'll get like three dollars for that, it. I really do think about that. I'm like, this stuff I could really get rid of for some income pretty quickly. Whereas you buy stuff digitally. Oh yeah, go on eBay. Yeah. Um, it is incredible. It's amazing. So I'm gonna do a quick. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I'm just like I like like having stuff through the years, and then also you you end up having stuff that like it doesn't you can't buy anymore. Like I have DVDs, it's like oh right. It, if yeah. it goes out of print, you're really in luck. Because right. then if you are in a financial bind for whatever reason, ten years from now, suddenly you have a, a silly little DVD that's worth two hundred dollars or whatever. And I know? and I do like having different versions of the same. I mean, now I have three mm-hmm. versions of Citizen Kane, which everyone should have right. I, I mean I, the version of the passenger i bought because there's no american blu-ray and i had yeah. to buy a i had to buy a non-region coded like international i think it's like french or italian version oh really of the passenger and it, but it's yeah let me grab it does it play uh, on, your, on your on your on your player yeah, yeah i have a yeah i have a i purposely have a blu-ray player that plays any region oh nice yeah this is the italian one nope wait it's french this is the french one Mm. Uh, and it even has the original title Profession Reporter mm. it's not called The Passenger it was called Profession Reporter in Italian doesn't it just uh, make you yeah. feel good like having those movies around you can look at them and be like oh that's there like I feel like that's I know that's why I got it um, <laughs> yeah. so yeah uh, that's what I got recently and also I want to do a quick shout out totally unrelated but a book I found at the library recently you may have heard of the author Andre Guide Andre Gide? I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, he famously did The Counterfeit. Oh, The Immoralist uh, and The Counterfeiters. But I was at the library the other day and I was shelving and I came across this book called The Fruits of the Earth by Andre Gide. And opened it up and, you know, you get to that point where you get to be a certain age and you think, oh, I know who my favorite authors are. I found all my favorite books. Uh, this also happened to me with, like, Fernando Pessoa, where I just opened it up and it blew my mind. So I just want to put it out there. Not going to say too much about it, but Andre Gide, The Fruits of the Earth, really startling discovery, really great so far. I don't see it getting any different. I think it's the same thing for 200 pages, and it's I'm here for that. Uh, really beautifully written stuff. So I'm going to throw that out there as a book wreck. Oh, nice. Fruits of the Earth. Uh... Because, like, I go periods of time where I'm, like, trying to read stuff, and I'm, like, kind of into it, and I just kind of finish it because. Right. But then you get to a book, and you're like, oh, this is great. I want to read that, you know, 
I can tell that when I'm done reading it, I'll be like, oh shit, the book's over. Mm. Now I gotta wait months until I find one I really like again. Yeah. <laughs> I think the last time I said one was a Bologna book. And mm. then I was just like disappointed when I finished it. Mm. I was like, man. Books are like well, friends that, that die quickly. Mm-hmm. Oh. And like friends who die too soon, I think Scatman Crothers is the only one who gets killed. Yeah. Because... Jack Nicholson somehow knows that he that Scatman Crothers is the better father, the better care, better caretaker, the better caretaker of the place, the better yeah. mentor to his own son. And I think uh, also I just think that Jack Nicholson wants to be black. Yeah, that's true. And yeah, he probably <laughs> you get you're playing that Lee Reed song. I want to be black. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, this is a good place movie to victory. good a place to end as any. Uh, another exciting episode of Movie Victory. Tune in next week where we talk about Doctor Sleep. You know, which was uh, made by Stanley Kubrick's son, right? Yeah. No. Nope. <laughs> no. No. He doesn't have any kids. All right. Should we stop now? Do you want to count them? Yeah. All right. Here we go. Stopping now. Oh, I don't want to be a fucked up middle class college student anymore.